This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances in childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 103, recorded on September 16th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm joined along with my co-host, Dr. Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University. Hello, Tim. Hey, Brenda. Great to be here. It's fantastic for us to gather again today on TWIPO with our wonderful guest, Dr. Roger Packer. It is my pleasure and delight to introduce Dr. Packer, who for many will require no introduction as he has spent many decades as a world leader in pediatric brain tumor clinical trials and research. Dr. Packer is currently Senior Vice President for the Center of Neuroscience and Behavioral Medicine the Gilbert Distinguished Professor of Neurofibromatosis and Director of both the Gilbert Neurofibromatosis Institute and the Brain Tumor Institute of Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC. He is a professor of neurology and pediatrics at the George Washington University. And I was blown away by reviewing Dr. Uh, Packer's uh, almost 200 page CV that includes well over 400 manuscripts in the field, and also almost 400 reviews and book chapters in the field of pediatric oncology, neuro-oncology, and related topics. It is truly an impressive body of work that has really driven the field. Dr. Packer initially went to medical school at Northwestern in Chicago, did his pediatrics at Cincinnati, pediatric hematology oncology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and then pediatric neuro-oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. All of this training really laid the groundwork for what has become an incredibly distinguished career in the field of pediatric neuro-oncology. Dr. Packer has really been innovative over these years in pediatric neuro-oncology. And today we really wanna focus on some of the new innovations and new things in the field and really talk about focused ultrasound therapy for pediatric brain tumors, which Dr. Packer has described as the greatest breakthrough in potentially the last 50 years in pediatric neuro-oncology. So with that, Dr. Packer, I want to open up by uh, asking if you can kind of tell our audience and describe for us what focused ultrasound therapy is and why this might be the most exciting development in the last 50 years. Well, but, but first, before we start, I just want to thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure being here and being able to tell you a little bit about some of the work going on at Children's National and focused ultrasound. Also, by way of uh, just disclosure, I'm a pediatric neurologist, not a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and do come to this field with a real neurologic basis of hoping not to do harm while we try to help these children. So just with those minor disclosures, I'm, I'm more than happy to speak about our work. For the past 
30 plus years, I've had the opportunity to take care of a lot of patients with brain tumors, children with a whole lot of different kinds of tumors. And for some tumors, we've made tremendous strides where, where survival rates have risen from 40% or less to 90%, even for some very malignant tumors. However, for one subset of tumor, one of the more unfortunately common in pediatrics, the diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, now that's been reclassified as diffuse malignant glioma, our abilities to make differences for these children have been very minimal over the past 30 to 40 years. There's a variety of reasons for that. We didn't understand the biology of the tumor. We're making progress there. We knew that the tumor wasn't resectable. Uh, that really put us at a real deficit to help those patients. But one of the things that we really thought was a major limitation and still think is our inability to get therapy, especially selective anti-cancer therapy directly to the tumor. The body has a mechanism called the blood-brain barrier, which honestly is a good mechanism. It keeps toxins that might be circulating your blood out of selective areas of the brain so it doesn't cause brain injury. Unfortunately, that is something that works to defeat us for diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas because we can't get drugs there and possibly the immunotherapy there to effectively treat the tumor. The advent of focus ultrasound in the past one or two decades has been a great advance for some non-central nervous system tumors. But for the tumors of the brain, especially the deep-seated ones, the focus ultrasound couldn't penetrate the brain, especially the skull. It couldn't get through unless you were willing to raise a flap of the skull every time you used it. And even then, the techniques weren't there to really focus the ultrasound where you needed it to be. It was too difficult, or the only way to, to focus it would be to really cause a lot of heating of the brain and, and potentially brain injury. The new techniques that are available, one of which we have at Children's and are starting to be more available around the world, is able to do the focus ultrasound through an intact skull. Initially, we're sedating the children, but in time, we're going to be able to do this in awake children. The focus ultrasound can be aimed at a very selective deep area, such as the middle of the brainstem in children with pontine gliomas, and can be used in ways with other agents to either stimulate the tumor to release antigens so the immune system can come in, to be used with things called microbubbles to disturb the blood vessel of these tumors, open up the blood-brain barrier transiently, and allow agents to come in, or even be used as an activating agent to turn some pro-drugs on selectively within the tumor to try to treat these tumors. In this way, we could aim therapies to the tumor, not have to give them in huge quantities through the blood or in by needles or anything directly into the tumor, which is sort of an ineffective way to deliver the therapy. And we hope for these tumors and other deep-seated tumors be a great advance to help us battle this disease and make a real difference in our ability to control it.
That sounds really interesting and um, appreciate your overview of that. I guess I'm curious about what about the what is it about the new techniques to allow you to do this through the through the skull? Is it just a different technology, different wavelength, or or can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that people have been very interested in focus ultrasound over the past decade, but the early techniques required removal of the skull and also could not really aim very well deep in the brainstem because that's where the vertebral bodies were and other things to sort of block some of the ultrasound entry. Also, having to do this kind of therapy repetitively was very difficult if you had to raise a skull flap every time and do a major surgery. The new technique um, by two or three companies in the world, not only by the one we're using, the Insight Tech uh, procedure, allows the therapy to be given through the skull without removing the skull, but also allows real-time monitoring of, uh, by MRI where the ultrasound is hitting and also the temperature that the ultrasound is causing in the brain so we don't inadvertently cause brain injury by overheating the brain. Being able to do all of this in real time was where it got very exciting to me when I first saw the technique about three to four years ago and worked with the company and with others around the world to say, well, what if we aim that deep in the brain? Wouldn't this be a great alternative to some of the other ways we're trying to get ultrasound to help us. And thankfully, there are people who are a lot smarter than me. They worked out the engineering issues about getting the ultrasound to the right place, to be able to monitor simultaneously the area of the brain that we're treating so we don't overheat it, and to be able to say that we can do this safely to open up the barrier if we use things like microbubbles. There was also concurrent work being done with the same type of machine in animal models and in even larger animals to try to prove the safety of this technique. Because, of course, if you cause too much swelling in the brainstem, then everything you're trying to do with the focus ultrasound is for naught because you could terribly hurt the child. And I think, it, thank you for that explanation. I, and I, I was seeing thinking sort of two things. One is, is the real mechanism for activation or the mechanism for the, the injury to the tumor cells really a heat driven mechanism? And, and, and I wonder if you can comment on that. And also when we think about sort of radiation therapy, we think about kind of that pathway or other areas around the area that we're targeting being affected. Um, can you comment on just sort of the, the kind of, process about planning for that, how we minimize kind of uh, injury to other parts of the brain and potential side effects of this, Dr. Packer. Sure. So for, for your first question, as far as how does this work to open up the blood-brain barrier, that's not the general way ultrasound has been used, has been to cavitate, to heat up the brain or the organ and try to destroy the tissue. You can't do that in the brainstem. The child won't survive. So one of the questions was, how could you get the blood-brain barrier to selectively open up and then close? And during that period of time that you selectively opened it up, get a drug into there. So very smart physicists figured out 
that if we gave micro bubbles through the bloodstream, as they do in catheterizations in the heart, that when you the micro bubbles pass through the circulation and the normal blood vessels of the brainstem, you hit it with ultrasound, and that really gets the micro bubbles upset. And they start shaking and bouncing, and they actually start bouncing against the blood vessel walls. If they bounce too much, they will break the blood vessel walls. That's the that's one of the nuances of this. But if they bounce enough without breaking the blood vessel walls, they open up the little junctions between the cells of the walls of the blood vessels and transiently open up the blood-brain barrier, usually for somewhere between four and 12 hours. During that period, then you can follow with a chemotherapeutic or an immunotherapy agent or anything for passing it again through now this abnormal blood-brain barrier and getting the drug through the barrier into the tumor. That's really great. And we let the drug then do its job as long as we pick the right drug. And in many animal models, we thought drugs would work really well in this disease, but they haven't, probably because we haven't gotten them there. Even another approach is to use the ultrasound in another very unique way of sending a pro-drug through the bloodstream that doesn't hurt anyone. But when the ultrasound hits the drug coursing through, it can act to activate the drug. And one of these drugs is a drug called 5-ALA that's been a drug around for quite a period of time that gets into dividing cells, but it couldn't get into the brainstem. And to get the drug active, we had to use a light source, but you can't shine a light source into the brainstem. It's deep. But the first patient we did, and this is a study that we have open now, we have two studies open, we can activate the 5-ALA with ultrasound, instead of using a light source, selectively in that area, get it to seep into the brain and also cause tumor cell death. So these are two different approaches. They're a little different, but their common denominator is we're using the ultrasound to be focused in the brainstem to deliver the therapy. Now, to go back to your second question, that's probably where the biggest problem potentially comes. We can't use high doses or what is called high intensity focused ultrasound in the brainstem because we will cause necrosis or death in the brainstem and will kill normal cells as well as tumor cells. So we have to do something more selectively. We can use the low intensity focused ultrasound as we're doing now to either activate the prodrug or up or open the blood brain barrier that will not cause overheating of the brain and cavitation of the brain. Now, if we're wrong with our energy sources, we can cause damage to the brain and the brain does not easily recover from such damage, especially when you're dealing with a brain, which is the seat of heart rate, seat of blood pressure control, seat of breathing control, seat of the, our abilities to swallow, to stay awake. Damage in that area is not going to be well recovered. And we know that. So that's our first concern. The second concern is that if we get the drug to the tumor cells, will the drug work too fast? Will it cause swelling? Will it recruit other things and cause inflammatory cells to come in? Will it cause cytokine release and cause swelling of the brainstem that can cause that degree of brain damage? 
How do we mitigate that? That's what we're all working on. We have to be very focused where the ultrasound goes. The first patient who is treated, and this is the first patient treated in a human being, in a five-year-old girl, two weeks ago at our institution, uh, we did all we could do with the imaging to make sure we were right where we needed to be in the brainstem, that we weren't overheating the brainstem. And the first patient was only allowed to have half the brainstem treated with the tumor. And if the child did well, then come back and treat the second half. This is an FDA rule. If that child does well with the second treatment, and she did remarkably well with the first with no side effects, and we know we were there because we had MR targeting, then we will treat subsequent children on this study uh, with the 5-ALA drug uh, with a company called Sinolescence to the entire brainstem. And we'll be doing that with partners. We're not going to be the only institution, but we're the first institution up. Similarly, when we treat the children with the blood-brain barrier, disrupting aging the microbubbles, we are limited initially to treat only a portion of the pons, but that treatment is supposed to be given subsequent times. So ultimately we have to treat the entire pons. And one of the very interesting things that was a learning experience for me, because we always say, well, the FDA has been a little hesitant to allow us to treat, risk adverse, the FDA came back to us when we initially said we would only treat a third of the pons or a half of the pons and said, no, if you're gonna take this risk, treat the whole tumor. Have something that's a benefit to your patient, not just proof of principle. And we took that to heart. We were thankful, it adds to our risk, but it's the only thing that makes sense when these pioneering patients and their families give us the trust that we're treating them with the intent of making a real difference in their disease. Well, clearly with something new like this, uh, and uh, you're up against a, a, a major adversary, as you mentioned, we've been trying things for decades and very little, if anything has worked, uh, that you gotta take some risk to be a pioneer. So uh, congratulations on getting these these launched. What What is the, how, how I guess I'm curious how well you can, focus the ultrasound, like what is the scatter? Is it, are you like within millimeters? How accurate can you be with, with this? Within millimeters, uh, there, there, there's no question. And you have to be in the brainstem. We, we can't get into the medulla and cause any swelling because of the respiratory risks involved initially. We have to hit the tumor. So some of the tumors are just too big for us at this point. There's too much risk. There's too much heating that's going to go on in the brain. We certainly can't treat tumors that are outside the pons. I know that families have been calling because appropriately they're desperate for a new, more innovative therapy. But we have to be rational what we can or can't accomplish. At this point, we're predominantly treating children at a time of their disease where they've been given the radiation, the acute effects of radiation have worn off, the tumor has not yet recurred. As we know, that 90% of these children will have recurrent tumors and will die of their disease within 18 months of diagnosis. An unbelievably fatal prognosis for most of these children, very dismal. And because of that prognosis, those families will try anything, but I don't wanna try anything that I know is gonna harm them 
I know won't help them. So we treat them at that very finite time where we think the tumor is at its relative smallest, but we know is a very high chance of relapsing, and then um, hope that this will not hurt them and that this will give them a survival advantage. So in this first uh, trial, are you where you, I know you had to do sort of half and then half, uh, so there must be two treatments, but are you, are there, are there retreatments like chemo cycles kind of thing? And uh, for one of the trials, yes. For one of the other trials, no. At this point, we're hoping to petition the FDA if the first group of children do well. We have to try different energy levels and different doses of the 5-ALA drug that when we get to the right dose, that will allow us to come back and retreat. I don't know what the magic time is. Is it once a month? Is it once every three months? The way it's done, and I guess I should point that out, is that since there's no surgical procedure, the child is placed in a frame, has put asleep. At this point, the head is shaved, and the child is slipped into an MRI scanner, and we're doing it in real time in the MRI scanner. There's no separate apparatus. The head frame and the ultrasound machine, which is sort of coated with a um, sort of a water bath to keep everything cold enough, there's no heating of the brain, is all slipped into the MRI. Sort of very cool, actually. But what we're hoping that within the next six months, that we will not need to shave the head, that everything will be done stereotactically, that child can just go in, will no, have no frame, will just be slipped in asleep, come in. And even the first treatment only took two to three hours, and the child went home 24 hours later. Honestly, could have gone home three hours later, but we're not that brave on this. We kept the child in the ICU for observation, and the child was bored, which is what we really like to see. We want to see a very bored, normal child in the ICU. And we don't know if the higher energies, as we try to treat all the brain, are we going to get into swelling? But this is too good an opportunity to turn away when we haven't had a, a real a real step up in this tumor, a lot of theoretic advances, a lot of scientific advances of knowing what makes up the tumor, but none that we've translated yet into more effective therapy for the majority of our children. And I think that's why we're pushing it, but we have to be cognizant that these are first in human studies. And it's so exciting to just hear about this. And it really sounds like it holds a lot of promise. And I was just going to follow up on, you said you it's done in the MRI scanner. Who are sort of the key people on the team? Is it neurosurgeons, interventional neuroradiologists? Like it, from a practical standpoint, who are the key people performing the this amazing uh, new technology? Clearly not me. I'm not targeting. I'm not pushing the drug. I'm uh, a very interested voyeur during these procedures, evaluating the child before and after. But this is a real team approach. And we've worked very hard with our team. And there was always a little hesitation being the first in human. But they, they really did understand, given the stakes, they were willing to do it. So who's involved? And then our lead is our neurosurgeon, Dr. Syed who actually does the targeting with both our ultrasound uh, expert and our neuroradiology team. We have anesthesia there, obviously keeping the child sedated and monitoring for any 
complications. We have a team of radiologists there. We have our oncology team doing that as we push the drug in. We have our neuro team actually um, there making sure there's no complications, including myself. And then afterwards, we're highly dependent on our ICU team to monitor the patient. So this is a tour de force. There's in this little MRI control area, we should have sold tickets. We had so many people in there, um, but we needed them there. And, and we're, as we go into the higher energy levels and we actually go into barrier disruption, which this first therapy wasn't, it's more of an activation. There's probably even gonna be more people in that room looking at that. Every child will have 24 hours in the ICU following the procedure. Uh, we have our nurses, our critical um, social workers. Most of these kids are coming long distances. We have to put them up in, in hotels, support the family, because they are the pioneers. They're giving us their trust. So we, we understand all the people that are going to be involved in this process. So it's a real team effort. And I really appreciate children's through a COVID crisis allowing us to spend the millions of dollars to get the machine here, a machine that's made out of the country in Israel, to be the first pediatric hospital in the world to place that in that hospital, and all of these other specialties to understand the illness we're taking care of and their willingness because of that illness to take that chance for these children. How should families uh, find out more information? Is there, are there websites? Or, and also, how should they contact your your team to sort of... Uh... Yeah, it, it, there's clearly a very strong family network, network on uh, diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas on the midline tumors. And that's already been gone through that network. At the same time, we've been hesitant until we actually are ready to offer the therapy to place it on a website, but that's our plan to have it placed on the website. We have a coordinator and soon we hope a nurse will be dedicated just to this that will help screen the patients so we can see who's the right and the best patient. So right now we're starting to build up the way to access us, but we're not having any trouble finding people finding us. We've not only had inquiries, obviously, from children we take care of here and regionally and nationally. We have a Nash, uh, a very large sort of regional network with about 10 major children's hospitals that work with us in the tumor board. And we've let them know about this, but we're going to go nationally. And we've, most of our inquiries, to be very honest, have become internationally that already know about it. So yes, we will publicize it. Uh, we have a person who takes all the intakes that we can provide uh, that information to you guys if you wanted this part of the uh, information as part of the podcast. I, I think we need, we're need we gonna need to do a little bit better job to organize that, but we didn't wanna do it until we were sure we could offer it. And we're still limited right now to one patient a month. We hope that within about a three to four month period, when the second study also revs up, we're also approved for that second study, we'll be doing a patient every other week. And that will probably be the most the FDA will let us doing this feasibility component. Yeah, that makes sense. Slow and cautious, that's fine for new things, I guess, but hopefully if you'll be able to accelerate if things continue to look good. Brenda, any la we're running out of time. Any last questions or comments for Dr. Packer? 
No, I just want to thank Dr. Packer for sharing with us this exciting new development. I see why you say it may be the most exciting thing in the last 50 years, but I think it it brings together so many amazing technologies. And as you said, it's a huge team effort. The potential to me sounds incredible. I think we didn't touch on sort of, as you said, there, there's the heat aspect, there's the, the micro bubbles aspect and how that links with um, different drugs, I think is it really opens the watershed of possibilities in the future. And so I look forward to hearing more as this develops and how it could potentially be expanded to other tumor types as well. Yeah, I just want to add that, you know, I'm excited about this, but we know that other people are doing great work around the world on, on diffuse intrinsic protein gliomas, immunotherapies, the CAR T, the viral therapy. We look at this as a tool that could be in time coupled with these therapies to make them more effective. We we understand we're scratching the surface and these th- therapies are only going to be as good as what we put in the brain with this therapy. This is a technique. The focus ultrasound itself is not going to cure patients. It gives us a way to get more there. And then we would love to work with our partners around the world that have been working on this disease in our oncology team, led by Dr. Kilburn and Dr. Fonseca and, and, our, and our great neurosurgeons. We really do want to make this an open book of how when how do we utilize this best. And we are not going to be the only center up. I think within the next year, there'll be at least three or four other centers working on protocols with us, some of them protocols that they will lead, and we will work with them to try to make a difference for this kid. There is no exclusivity with this. We've just got to make a difference. Yeah, that's a fantastic way to end. I think it's all about teamwork and collaboration, cooperation, and if this is something that can enable lots of other therapies to work for this intractable disease, that would be a huge advance. So we appreciate your being here today and sharing your thoughts with us. Once again, thank you very much for giving me the time. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children, like the one we discussed today. So remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, The faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight. And thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsomdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWIPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.